Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Kenneth C. Griffin, Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago, the Chief Economist at Lyft, and an editor of the Journal of Political Economy. Soon to be the Chief Economist at Walmart, he was formerly the Chairman of the Department of Economics at UChicago. Holding a PhD in Economics from the University of Wyoming, he has written hundreds of academic papers in several books, including most recently, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great, and Great Ideas Scale. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. John List. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So to start off today, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about your background and how you got into economics. Sure, of course. So my background is one of, I guess, a first place to start would be that I'm a first-gen college kid. My dream as a high schooler was to be a golf professional, and that dream was fleeting, and I turned to my second love, which was economics. And economics is, to me, sort of a second nature way to think about problems. And from that love grew an interest in receiving a PhD. So I went to undergrad at UW-Stevens Point, University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. And I went to graduate school, as you mentioned, at the University of Wyoming. And there I essentially studied how to use field experiments to learn about the world. And I want you to think about a field experiment as John List is using the world as his lab. So my bet is, is that most of your listeners have been one of my experimental subjects, and I'm sure we'll get to some of those studies in a little while, but it's not creepy in the sense that I can pinpoint your name with an action. It's nothing like that. It's the sense of I can look at a group of people and think about if I raised the price of a lift or lowered the price of a lift trip how much will people respond on average? So that became my passion when I was in graduate school is to use the world as my lab. And I've been doing that ever since. I, I started off at the University of Central Florida. And then from there, I went to the University of Arizona and then the University of Maryland. And I moved here in 2005 to the University of Chicago. Great. Um, so today I wanted to talk to you about your latest book, um, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your pre-K program called Chicago Heights. So could you please tell us a bit more about that and how it started your work into research and scaling? Sure, sure. That's a great question. So back around 2007, there's a community around Chicago, just south of Chicago, called Chicago Heights. And they called me and asked me if I could help them. And I said, of course, I'm glad to help. That, that's why I became an academic, because I want to help people. And they said, look, we're willing to open up our community, but the issue is we don't have any resources. And this is typical for any community that is, is essentially trying to do the best they can for their citizens. They have a, a resource constraint problem. And I talked to them for several months, and it came down to we should work in the area of education. So I decided to work with Steve Levitt and Roland Fryer to start a preschool program in Chicago Heights. So that preschool program is three, four, and five-year-olds who come in every day, every morning, and 
we give them schooling and we also work with their parents in what's called a parent academy. So that preschool started in 2010 in Chicago Heights. And by the time 2014 rolled around, we had great results. And the results were so good that I started to talk to policymakers because I wanted every kid in America, if not the world, to receive what we were doing in Chicago Heights, the Chicago Heights curriculum, so to speak. And there, what I was met with was a slap in the face. And what I mean by that is policymakers said, look, John, it looks great in Chicago Heights, but don't plan on it scaling. And that kind of took me back because I had been working on field experiments for 25 years at that point, and I had never been met with that criticism. And the criticism was essentially one of saying, look, all of the experts tell us that their intervention will work. And then when we scale it, it ends up not working as well as what they promised. And that episode back in 2014, 2015, ended up leading to a research agenda that led to a lot of academic papers on trying to add science to scaling. Okay, um, so in the book, you speak about five links that an idea must possess for it to be scalable, which I wanted to go through one by one and understand. So the first link is called dupers and false positives, which, as I understand it in this context, essentially refers to when scientific tests and experiments are undertaken to prove the validity or effectiveness of an idea. And they come to an inaccurate conclusion, which is then used to implement that idea in the real world. So you contend that such false positives are much more frequent than we may expect based on the way that we do science today. So can you please tell us a bit more about the idea of, of false positives, um, why they occur and what it means for scalability? Sure, sure. So you just headed out of the park. You explained it in a brilliant way. So thank you. So, so that's right. Um, I want you to think about false positives as in you get a COVID test. And in some cases, the test says that you're COVID positive, but you're actually not. That's called a false positive. When you hear a, a burglar alarm or a fire alarm going off and there's actually no fire or no burglar, that's a false positive. Now, in science, the way that we conduct our research, we claim to set the false positive rate at 5%. So what that means is for every 100 ideas that we show are great ideas, 5% of them will not be so great. It will be a false positive. Now, when you look in the knowledge creation market and look in the academic community, what you really have is a market that yields false positives at a much greater rate. And it might be a rate as high as 0.4, 0.5. So what I mean by that is in many cases, we think that there's voltage in the idea, but in the end, there's really not. Even though we think, well, there's a 5% chance it's not real, the way that academia is set up, that chance is probably like 40 or 50%. And that, that causes us to try to scale ideas that never have voltage to begin with. Okay, um, so the second link that you'd speak about um, that might result from this issue um, is overestimating um, our audience. So can you tell us a bit more about that and why it occurs? 
Yeah, absolutely. So vital sign number two, I, I label as know your audience. And what that effectively means is when you have an idea or you have a policy, you should figure out before you scale for whom is that idea effective for or who will like that product. In many cases, we use focus groups. So I tell a story in this chapter about McDonald's and how they introduced what's called the Arch Deluxe. I think that was probably even before your time, but in the 90s, McDonald's introduced a sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. And they introduced it because they ran focus groups. And a focus group is they bring in a group of people into a lab setting and they have them try the sandwich. And then they ask them, you know, will you purchase it if we introduce it in, in various McDonald's? And the problem with that approach is, first of all, the people who come into the lab might not be representative of the people who don't come into the lab. That's called an audience question. And the other one is an incentive question. So by this, what I mean is when people are in a setting like this, a focus group setting, in many cases, their incentives are to overstate how much they really like the sandwich. And the reason why is because to them, if you introduce it later, that gives them an option value or an opportunity to purchase a sandwich. And that's good because it's good to have more options. So people's incentives are also to say, look, I love this burger, even though they really don't. So this vital sign is really about do the best you can to figure out how big is your audience and who is your audience. And if you don't like the answers to those two questions, you need to go back and refine and change your product or your idea. Okay. Um, and so that brings us to the third link, um, which to me is one of the most interesting. Um, it's titled, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? So as I understand it, this idea talks about how for something to be scalable, the factors that contribute to its success must be replicable. Now, this seems pretty intuitive when you think about it like that, but there, there are so many examples that demonstrate how this principle is overlooked. So could you tell us a bit more about this? Is it the chef or is it the ingredients idea? And why so many people tend to make that mistake um, when thinking about scaling? Yeah, yeah. So I'm so glad that you're that this is a favorite chapter of yours because it's a favorite chapter of mine too, because it's so rich. And, and it's so rich and unintuitive because, you know, unlike the second vital sign, which is know your audience, we, we kind of all knew that already. And we know, you know, how big of a slice of the pie can you get? But here we're turning the tables a little bit. And instead of talking about people, we're talking about situations and the situational features that are involved in, say, our initial success. If we can't replicate those features at scale, we're, we're dead in the water. And there are several different features of situations that are important. And I talk about those in the chapter. And one you bring up is, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And, and that's a good one to bring up because in the end of the day, when you look at restaurants, a lot of restaurants try to scale. They sort of go through the mental model of it worked in this restaurant and say, I make a million dollars a year. So if I had 50 restaurants, I'm going to make $50 million a year. So they give it a go and they try and many of them fail. 
Some of them work. Now, the ones that fail, un- invariably, is, you know, sometimes it's execution, but the, if the initial success is because of the chef, the restaurant will never scale. And what I mean by that is if your initial success is a unique individual, unique humans never scale. But on the other hand, if your initial success was because of ingredients and you can buy those ingredients at scale, now you're in business because your success initially is built on ingredients that you can replicate at scale. Now, this this general result, it's not only just restaurants, of course. You think about my Chicago Heights early childhood program. What was important in that program is that I needed good teachers. The problem is I only had to hire 30 teachers in Chicago Heights for my Petri dish project. But if you wanted to scale that and hire 30,000 teachers around Chicago, you would be in big trouble because I can't replicate the 30 good teachers at the level of 30,000. So that tells me I need to go back to Chicago Heights and develop a program that works with the types of teachers who I can hire. And that's something that is often missed. People don't understand that there is something unique in every setting. And if you can't capture and understand that uniqueness in the chapter I talk about understand your negotiables and your non-negotiables and make sure that you can replicate your non-negotiables at scale. If you can't, you need to refine your idea. All right. Um, now that brings us to the fourth, um, fourth vital sign that you discuss in the book, um, which is about spillover and talks about the unintended consequences of certain ideas that occur as a result of the fact that people tend to alter their behaviors in response to changes in their communities and lives and are indirectly impacted by things that occur around them uh, that, that people awful, often take fail to take into account where, when implementing or scaling ideas. So can you tell us a bit more about the spillover effect and, and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about good spillovers first. Now, think about social media and platforms. For example, Facebook. Now, Facebook, in the very beginning, if hardly anyone uses Facebook, or whether it's Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, Twitter, if very few people use it, it's not very valuable. But as it grows and scales, there's something called network externalities, which that's a lot of economies. But what it means is, as you grow, the service becomes more valuable. So think about Facebook. As more and more people get on Facebook, the product or the service that Facebook provides becomes more and more valuable to you. So that's a kind of spillover that if your idea has that sort of network externality, you can have high voltage at scale. Now, there are other ideas that look really good in the Petri dish, but they have spillovers that work in the opposite direction. And here I talk a little bit about my work at Uber. I was a a chief economist at Uber. And in several cases, we tried to raise driver pay. But one way to raise driver pay at Uber is to raise what's called the rate card. And what that means is you're paid if you're an Uber driver by the time, the amount of minutes somebody is in your backseat, and the distance that you travel with them. 
So what happens is we we can increase that rate card in an effort to help drivers earn more money. But the problem is then more drivers come on board and that causes a supply curve to shift outwards. And then when there are more and more drivers, there are more and more drivers driving around with empty cars. So it comes to a new market equilibrium and this new market-wide equilibrium actually undoes the entire rate card increase on the wages. So you end up making the same amount of money because of this new market equilibrium that's caused by spillovers. So that's kind of another idea. And I talk about many different kinds of spillovers, but the general notion is it's important for you to understand, are there spillovers to your idea? And can you capture them and give your idea higher voltage when you scale it? And, and another one of those equilibrium problems I, I wanted to ask you about was that, that you speak about um, as well is um, what you saw in the Chicago Heights program um, yeah. with pre-K kids. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So another kind of spillover is, re- remember, I brought in a bunch of three, four and five year olds and I randomly put some of them in treatment, which meant that they came to our program and I put some of them in control. And the control means that they don't receive anything from us directly, any program. And what we found was a wonderful spillover. The the treatment kids actually helped the control kids in terms of if I'm a control kid and I live nearby enough other treatment kids, it was like I was in treatment myself. And that's a really cool spillover because if that's happening between kids, we can really plan on high voltage when we scale it because we're going to have a lot of great spillovers. And was this just because the kids would talk to each other, the parents would talk to each other, and, and these effects would tend to rub off on one another? Great question. Great. Super question. So so that's called mechanism. And, and the mecha- we, we found two mechanisms or two paths for what was going on. When it, when it came to executive function skills, so things like teamwork, self-control, what we find is that spillover is between the kids themselves. When it came to cognitive skills, so things like letter recognition, uh, object recognition, et cetera, that actually flowed through the parents. Now, you might ask, well, wait a second, how, how does that flow through the parents? Well, what happens is parents who have kids in the control group talk to parents of kids in the treatment group, and the the treatment parents are saying how much their kids are growing and learning, and that actually induces parents in the control group to go and get alternative treatment, is to, you know, go and get an alternative program for their kids. So that's a cool kind of spillover that we documented. That is, that's really interesting. Um, So as opposed to the ideas so far, which talk about the demand side, the fifth link is more along the lines of conventional supply side economics, which discusses economies and diseconomies of scale. So obviously in certain industries, um, such as software, the marginal cost of producing just one additional unit of output tends to be negligible. Whereas in others, um, economies of scale is either virtually impossible to achieve or firms may even face diseconomies of scale um, when attempting to scale their idea. So Dr. List, to finish off this part of the book, tell us about this phenomenon and how it affects scalability. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you're exactly right. So the other four vital signs are all about the demand side or the benefits of your idea. 
And now we're we're changing course a bit, and we're talking about the supply side. Or, in essence, does your econ- does your idea have economies of scale, or does it have diseconomies of scale? And and what I mean by that is economies of scale means as you expand and as you produce more and more and more, what is happening to the average total cost to produce it per unit? So if the average cost to produce it is going down and down and down, that's called economies of scale. So that, that's a good trade for your idea to have because as we expand, it actually gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to produce. And, and that means kind of two things for a firm. The first one is, you know, as the initial adopters of an idea come in, the initial consumers come in, they might be willing to pay a lot of money. But the later consumers who come in might have a willingness to pay that's much lower. So if you have economies of scale, you can still serve these new consumers because it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for you to produce. That's a good thing. It allows you to expand even faster. Now, the other reason why businesses are concerned with economies of scale is because one, if, if you have it, once you grow big enough, it's very difficult for an entrant to come in because the entrant has a hard time competing with you because you're at a really low cost point. And for them, it's going to take a lot of growth to catch up to you. So it ends up being a a way in a form to keep entrants out of the market for firms. So it's essentially what I want you to do is look at your idea and explore as you expand Is it an idea that has economies of scale or is it an idea that has diseconomies of scale? And here I want you to think about my my check program. So so think about as I hired 30 teachers, it's one thing. But if I need to meet vital sign number three, which is hire all good teachers, what's going to happen if I have to hire 30,000 of them is I'm going to have to use a bigger and bigger budget because I'm going to need more and more incentives or higher and higher wages to attract the 20,000 teacher, the 25,000, et cetera. And that means I'm going up the supply curve in economics. And it means that there are diseconomies of scale because it's costing more and more and more to expand my program. So anytime you deal with humans in that way and you need high quality inputs, in a lot of those cases, you're going to be witnessing dramatic diseconomies of scale. And uh, I also wanted to understand, is the opposite also true? So, for example, um, the the higher or sorry, the 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 lower the economies of scale, um, the, the potential for economies of scale for your your idea or your business, um, the harder it is to scale. Um, so does the opposite also hold true if for a business like software and there are huge economies of scale, um, does that make it easier and easier to scale or is, is the opposite? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So just on the supply side. So, so just fix the demand side. And if you just focus on the supply side, absolutely. So the ideas that have greater and greater economies of scale, those are the easiest ones to actually scale. That's correct. Perfect. And now coming to the second part of the book, which discusses some of the secrets to high voltage scaling, including cultural aspects and incentive structures that vary between societies. So I don't think we're going to have time to go through it one by one like we did with these five. Um, But I just wanted to ask you to give us a quick rundown of these secrets and how entrepreneurs and businesses can use sort of cultural and societal factors to their advantage when scaling. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll try to go fast here and I'll, I'll just try to pick out some highlights. So so I, I think about the second part of the book is also something for individuals. It's for whether you're a firm or entrepreneur, that's great. This helps you. But it also helps people who are individuals and who, who never want to worry about an idea or worry about scaling, but they just want to lead a better life. They might be curious readers, for example. I think the second half of the book speaks to all of these people because it leverages simple economic thinking to help teach you a proper decision making and what a proper course of action might be in different settings. So in the incentives chapter, for example, I talk about, you know, most of the time when people hear an economist talk about incentives, they think it's going to be money, money, money. And in this chapter, I make it very clear that some of the most powerful incentives around are non-financial incentives. And I talk about tipping. So, so tipping on Uber, it's kind of interesting because only 1% of people tip on every trip. Okay, so I said that right. 1% of people tip on every trip. Now, on the other side, three out of five people never, ever tip. Okay, so, so tipping your Uber driver is very rare. But when you look at traditional taxi cabs, so if I take those same people who I just told you about who are non-tippers at Uber and move them to a taxi cab situation, 95% of the time, they will tip. Now, you can ask, but wait a second, what's different here? The difference is for Uber, you end up making the tipping decision after the ride is over and after you've left the car and you're not face-to-face with the driver. In the taxi cab situation, the traditional one, at the end of your ride, you settle up and you give them a tip face-to-face. So the fact that there's a strong norm around tipping and you feel bad, there's a lot of social pressure here now when you do it face-to-face. Riders who necessarily would not want to tip, they're actually forced to tip in that setting. Now, that's a non-financial incentive that ends up being very important. So that I talk about these types of incentives in the, in the back half of the book. I also talk about thinking on the margin. And, you know, we always teach students you should, as good economists, you should use marginal thinking. I actually demystify what that means in the second half of the book and show exactly how everyday people can use marginal thinking to make their lives better. There's also a chapter back here about quitting. And and I'm here to tell you that people don't quit enough. And they don't quit enough because it's one part society tells you that quitting is repugnant. And it's the other part, and this is a part that's our fault, we neglect the opportunity cost of time. And what that means is we we don't think about anything beyond our parochial setting. So for example, we don't lose, we don't leave our current jobs unless something bad happens in our current job. Like the, the manager doesn't like us anymore, or you get crossed with a coworker, you don't get the promotion, whatever. That causes you typically to move jobs. But we should be equally as likely to move jobs if our opportunity set gets better. So if the types of jobs out there just get better and better and better, that should also cause us to move. 
but it doesn't because we neglect the opportunity cost of working at our current job. And, and that reasoning goes to apartments, it goes to relationships, it goes to cities where we live, it goes to majors, whatever. So the last chapter in the back half of the book, I talk about culture, as you mentioned. Now, this was a fun chapter to write because I've worked on gender and diversity issues for close to 25 years. And the idea here is, you know, why do women get paid less than men to do identical jobs? And what is the best way to make sure that our orgs and our organizations have the proper diversity and the proper sensitivity around work and around the workplace? So this was fun because I lived through what happened at Uber. So I talk a little bit about that. I also talk about some fishing villages in Brazil, the Kabuchu tribe, uh, the Kabuchu villages. And, and these, I think, are impeccable ways to think about how to build a culture. And then I throw in a flavor of a lot of my research on the gender pay gap and neg women negotiating differently than men, how we should write our initial job ads. That, that very importantly affects the types of people who we attract. So, so I'll stop there and just say that the back half of the book is really a set of chapters, a set of five chapters that is really for everyone. Yeah. Um, and just before we finish off, uh, I did want to ask you about a very interesting um, bit of research. Um, you talked about one of the tribes, I think it was in Brazil, um, which was extremely patriarchal. And then another another tribe, I think it was somewhere in India, which was um, about as matriarchal as it gets. I don't think there are any truly matriarchal societies, but um, that was that was really um, as close as it gets in, uh, to the opposite of, of what you saw in the other one. And so could you tell us a bit more about that and yeah, the absolutely. differences? Great question. Great question. and Great insight. So, you know, you observe that women and men act differently in the Western world. For example, men, men tend to negotiate their wages a lot more than women. And men tend to take on more risky options compared to women. And those, those types of features end up leading to very different wage profiles of men and women. And... I started a research agenda several years ago that started to explore, you know, why is that the case? And, and why do men and women act differently? So this is a hard question now because we're getting at nature versus nurture. And, you know, people say, is it nature? Is it nurture? It, it ends up being importantly both. But what, what my team and I did is we sent a group to Tanzania. and. Tanzania is a patriarchal society, and in these villages in Tanzania, uh, this is called, if any of the listeners know this area, it's the Maasai tribe, and it's the black-robed Maasai, and in here, it's a very brutal society for women. When you talk to a woman, she'll say, look, the only right I have is for my husband to visit me for 15 minutes a, a morning for tea, and when you talk to a man and say, you know, what is your wealth? The man will say 20 head of cattle, five sheep, three donkeys, and seven wives. And then you'll say, really? And they'll say, yeah, I'm thinking about buying another wife, but they're just too expensive right now. So this is a society that teaches um, men and women in a very different way. So juxtaposed against that is a matrilineal society called the Cassies. And as you correctly pointed out, this is a society in India outside of Shillong, India, and we can only find 
four matrilineal societies. So this isn't matriarchal. We couldn't find any of those. But we did find four matrilineal societies, and this is the one that we traveled to. So here it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition because here it's the women who are making the decisions in the household. It's women who are making decisions in the community. And, you know, as you drive from the airport to the villages, you keep seeing this billboard and it's, it says the same thing. And we asked our, our taxi cab driver, you know, what does that billboard say? And the taxi cab driver turned around and said, ah, it's the men again. They're trying to get equal rights, but, but it's never going to work for them. So, so this is kind of an idea about what tells you, you know, the situation here is, you know, men say that they're, they're sick of being breeding bulls and babysitters in, in the Cassie tribe. Okay. So we go into experiments in these two areas and we explore how men and women respond to incentives and how they negotiate and how they choose to compete, et cetera, et cetera. What we find is that the Tanzania, the Maasai, men and women act a lot like America, the, the Western world. The, the men compete a lot more, they take more risk, they negotiate more, et cetera. But what's interesting is when you look at the data from the matrilineal society, what you find is their women act like our men and their men act like our women. So what's really interesting is women negotiate harder there. Women are more risk-loving. Uh, women make these decisions that look a little bit like the decisions that men make here. And, and that, that doesn't undo everything. It's obviously socialization is important. And, and nature, of course, is important, too. But I think this opens up the discussion that socialization is a much, much more important than any of us realized before this kind of work. So that's the story behind the, the Matri and, and Patri societies that we visited. Well, um, yeah, that's that's obviously super interesting. And I'd, I'd love to keep on talking about that. Um, but unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. And it's been a pleasure discussing your book. And I look forward to seeing your work at Walmart. Thank you so much. And if you like the book, please tell everyone else that you like the book. I really appreciate your your positivity and your willingness to talk about my book. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so uh, Dr. List's book is titled "The Voltage Effect: How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale." It's available. On, it's available on Amazon, Audible, Barnes and Nobles, or wherever else you get your books. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.